0: Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Very good to see you guys. I am Nate Wagner. I'm one of the pastors here at Portico Church Arlington. And yeah, so good to be here. We are starting a new series. We're going to be going through the book of James. So James comes um, after Hebrews, which is way in the back of your Bibles. Um, And it's before Revelation, obviously. Um, But it is a refreshing book to look at um, in a lot of ways because it's very simple and clear and practical. So you're not going to be confused by it other than um, like, why don't I live like this, right? You're gonna be confused by yourself, not by it. And so um, this was something that we wanted to do. I'll take a few minutes just to kind of like give you guys a little bit of information so that that will help you kind of understand um, why this book was written in the way it was to who it was, and why we are looking at it. Um, And then we'll kind of jump into our text this morning, which is going to be the first 18 verses of the letter. So this is the book of James, and it's written by James, but which James? There's lots of people with the name of James. And um, that is a hot debate, but there's really kind of like consensus, and the most reasonable, um, and kind of the, the... answer to that question that makes the most sense is that this is James, the brother of Jesus. So this is the brother of Jesus. He's the son of Joseph and Mary, grew up with Jesus, walked the earth with Jesus. Um, and then even as Jesus kind of entered into public ministry later in his life, James was still around and very much involved in seeing what his brother was doing and saying. And so that's who wrote the book. He also wrote it. James died pretty early on Um, he died kind of in the middle of the first century. And so this is one of the first letters that is written in the New Testament. So even though it comes towards the end of the New Testament, that's just kind of how it's put. It's not chronological. So he's writing this to a very early young church, um, a young Christian movement that is primarily Jewish at this point. Paul hadn't even really started his public ministry. And so that's how early on this is, like Paul is still kind of learning, and he goes away for 10 years and kind of um, just spends time with Christians learning from Jesus. And so James is kind of writing to a primarily Jewish audience that is now Christian, so that's a weird, like, do you use the word convert in that case, or are you just kind of like, do they mature in their understanding of the covenant to now include Jesus, um, and he's writing to them with one like, primary concern, and that is, don't forget the way of Jesus. So if you think about it, Jesus walking the earth was so crucial to his ministry. Like He was embodying everything that he was saying. He was living out his teaching. He would do something and then teach about it and talk about the implications that it has for the kingdom of God. And so, as Jesus rises into heaven, ascends to be with the Father, that center of gravity leaves something of a vacuum, and so now you just have kind of the apostles kind of looking at each other like, "Hmm, what do we do now?" And they have the Spirit that's helping them with this teaching, and um, I think this is one. This is why the the letter of James is so beautiful, is because the Spirit clearly puts on his heart to say, "Don't all of the information." is great, but don't forget that Jesus is the way, and there is a way of life. He discipled you. He didn't just lecture at you, but he brought you with him in his life, and he lived with you, and he taught you practically what you are to do. And so it's kind of James's contribution to what should the Christian life look like? What does it look like to live out your faith? especially in a Greek context where information and um, doing things were two different categories. Like you could think something and think thoughts about something and then do something completely different, and it wasn't that big of a deal. And I think in some ways we can identify with that. I mean, that's one of the reasons why the pastoral team and the staff team wanted to do this letter is because we live in a society, a culture, an area that's heavily influenced by Greek thought, and so I think we can slip into that too, where we get really excited about learning things and thinking about things, but then applying them, take it or leave it. Is it really that important? What if I just get the right answers on the test? Isn't that okay? I know like all the right doctrine answers, but then James is saying, if your life looks nothing like the life of Christ, you don't know it. And so it's going to put pressure on us in that way. And in it, it's, um, it's going to be a pressure that we're going to just kind of dive into. Um, and that is really what we're going to start looking at this morning. We're going to look at these first 18 verses, which kind of gives an overview of the whole book. He's going to talk about um, your life as a process of transformation. So the Christian life is a journey of transformation. It's taking you from one place And bringing you to another place. So it's transformation. When you meet Christ, you follow him and nothing stays the same. Everything changes. So James shows us the way of Jesus. And we already know the way of Jesus in some ways. It's the way of humiliation, of crucifixion. And James is going to say, rejoice in that. Your transformation involves that and rejoice in it. Rejoice in your transformation. And as you look at transformation, James breaks it down into kind of these three phases or steps of transformation. The first is that life tests you. So you are transformed because life tests you. The second is that the tests humble you. And then finally, it's God who is transforming you. God is transforming you. So let's seek God this morning through his word because he wants to show us how to rejoice in the midst of that transformation. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you that you have given us this book that is just simple. It's something that we can easily understand and immediately apply and that you want us to, to join you in the work that you're doing, in the work that you're doing in us, the work that you're doing in this world. And so, Lord, I, I ask that you would just open our hearts, that we would, yes, use our minds, but that we would not leave it in our minds, but it would come out in what we do, and what we say, and what we think, what we want. And that our lives would be changed by your desires for us. God, okay? we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Do you guys want transformation? Yes, you want transformation. You know how I know this? Because there's a lot of money to be made in the self-help industry. You can make a lot of money selling transformation. What do you think about when you think of transformation? You think of weight loss. You think of a fixer-upper. You think of an extreme makeover. You think of a career overhaul. (laughs) What's hair growth? Yes, that's a transformation. Yeah. So we want our lives to get better. All of us want this. It's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm not going like, to tell you not to want a better life. But maybe your understanding of better needs to be challenged. Because when we look at James, when we look at these first 18 verses, I'm going to read them in a second, it doesn't seem like James is really that concerned with Improving the circumstances of our lives, making us more comfortable, more stable, more fulfilled. Instead, he wants us to be more tested. It's like, ooh, I don't know if I want that. It sounds harder. It doesn't sound like I can just read a book and then do that. And that's right. And so let's, let's read this. We're going to start in verse 1 and just read through 18, and then um, we'll kind of enter into this life testing us. So this is James chapter one, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test he will receive the crown of life of life which god has promised to those who love him let no one say when he is tempted i am being tempted by god for god cannot be tempted with evil Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. So we are to rejoice in our transformation. Life is hard, isn't it? Does anybody say like, oh, my life's easy right now? Like we may have said that a few years ago, but I I don't think I've met anybody in the last few years who wouldn't say like, no, things are hard. There's at least something in my life that is difficult. I know it has been for me. This year has been rocky. It has placed things in my life that I didn't want. They weren't part of my grand plan. Relationship issues, stress. The economy is very uncertain. No one really knows how it's going to turn out. There's a country about to invade another country. So I thought we were done with that, but apparently not. Here we are. All of these things are introducing uncertainty and stress in heavy doses. And it's been happening all the time, but it just seems more apparent, more felt by us right now. And so it's not that hard to prove that everyone is tested. Everyone is tested. You don't get out of this life Untested. And that's what James says when he says, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if, when. So if you don't think you've really been that tested, just wait. You will be. Everyone is tested. And these tests come in many forms. He says, these trials take the shape of various kinds. So there's not like a neat and clean bucket, oh, these are the kinds of trials that God uses for this transformation process, and these aren't. He says, no. Anything that is testing you is a test that God is using for your transformation. So he's already kind of reorienting our understanding of this pressure, of this discomfort, of these things that test us and try us. Work is hard right now. I've talked to a number of friends who are like in high positions in their careers. And they're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It's crushing them. And this can crush you in a lot of different ways. You can get into a position where you're not quite qualified because they needed somebody, and then you feel like you're just failing all the time. Or you can be crushed by your own success. You can get promoted and promoted and promoted until you are being asked to solve problems that don't have answers. I remember talking to somebody who was in intelligence and security, international security, and he rose through the ranks really quickly. And pretty soon he was like, Yeah, so I'm tasked with helping us figure out North Korea. It's like, Oh, okay, how's that going? It's like, Yeah, a little anxious, right? So he was so good at his job that he got put into a place where it's like, How do you solve that problem? You can't. We're feeling tested in that. Relationally, I know that we're tested, right? We may have spent years and years becoming close friends with somebody only to have the last two years show us how differently we see the world, how differently our ethical standards are, how we understand things completely differently, and it's fractured those relationships. Our families are being tested. Here's something else that tests us here, prosperity. We live in a rich area. We have so much, and we have so much pressure to keep up with everyone else who has so much, whether it be a new car or new clothes. If you think this pressure doesn't affect you, you're crazy. It does. Of course it does. And then we're terrified of failure. Failure terrifies us. And we're seeing people and systems fail on massive, le- on massive levels. And so we are being tested in a lot, in a lot of ways. But here's, here's the question, what is exactly is James referring to? These tests, what are they testing? Is it testing you, your abilities? Is it testing your strength? Is it testing your well-being? Is it testing your mental fortitude? your ability to handle this kind of stuff? No, look. Saying this is the testing of your faith that produces steadfastness. All of this pressure is being brought to bear on your life and it's testing what you actually trust. What are you trusting in? What do you believe? Because you can't just say that you believe something and then completely live a different way. We'll get to that in a minute. By saying this process of transformation, this testing, it will produce steadfastness. No, it will produce steadfastness. Doesn't mean that you're steadfast right now. Otherwise, there would be no process. There's no transformation. You, it would just be a revealing that you're steadfast. But no, instead, it's the testing that is producing steadfastness, the testing of your faith produces a steadfast faith, it refines it, it makes it pure. It burns out and reveals to you all of the impurities, all your desires to trust something else. When you want to trust in your own strength, it is showing you you're not trusting in Jesus like you say you do. And so it's an opportunity of refinement and growth in that. So this is something that we're supposed to consider all joy. Okay. It's, it's interesting. We'll get there. Just remember that. But one of the reasons why we should consider it all joy is because universally these tests will humble you. They humble us. See this in a couple different ways. First, he he gives us this kind of crazy illustration of rich and the poor in verse 9. And this seems like it's kind of like totally disconnected, but it's actually showing us what this looks like, what it looks like for these tests to then humble us. It says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. This, doesn't this sound like Jesus? This sounds like something Jesus would say to his disciples and then they would just kind of look at him. Like, boast in your humiliation? That's weird. Why are the, how, are, how are the lowly, how are the poor exalted? What do they do? They can't be exalted. They, can, they don't have the means. And that's exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about this principle of when your life tests you, it's going to push you to trust in something bigger than yourself just like for a poor person to be exalted in their society, it would require some kind of external mechanism of that exaltation. That's God. That's Jesus' heart to raise up and lift up the lowly. And the rich, from the other perspective, the rich, when they lose everything, they show that, yeah, it might look kind of humanly like, the rich are necessary just to maintain order in our world. They kind of hold things together. They use their resources for the common good, kind of. Just enough to kind of continue to pad their bottom lines. But when you take that away, what's revealed is that, no, that, that all comes from God. There is only one provider. And so the, the rich are humbled in that it doesn't actually come from them, And the poor are humbled as they're lifted high because that doesn't come from them either. The second way that you see this humbling take place is through this process of temptation that also happens. That's assumed to just also happen in concert with testing. So in verse 12, you see this Um, This language is reminiscent of Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In contrast, so what does it look like to not remain steadfast? It's to give in to temptation. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is developing something earlier when he's talking about praying and praying and asking God for wisdom in the context of a test, of a trial. He says, don't ask with doubt. Now, here's what we think of when we think of doubt. We think of intellectual doubt, don't we? We think of like, oh, I have a question that I want answered. But that is not what James is talking about. So he's not saying, like, if you have an, answered, an unanswered question about God, then eh, don't bother asking him for wisdom. He's not going to give it to you. That's not what he's talking about. What is he talking about? He's talking about this person who asks God for something and then lives as if God's not going to deliver. So it's a person who might be in financial straits, and asks God, goes to God and says, God, I need some wisdom. I need wisdom in this, in this time. And then they wake up the next day and they go rob a bank to solve their problem. It's like, you didn't, you didn't wait for God's wisdom, did you? You used your own strength, your own power. And so this is what it means when our temptation happens in the midst of trial. It's almost always about who are you trusting? Are you trusting yourself, your own strength? Are you trying to hide your weakness, cover it up, move it aside, and solve problems in your own strength? Or are you trusting God to deliver you in your weakness? A lot of, a lot of terrible things have happened to us over the course of our life. And it's important to take note here that James is clear. Those things do not come from God. When people sin against you, God didn't plant that in their mind to teach you a lesson. That does not come from God. God's not even tempted by evil. It doesn't conceive in his mind. But here's what it does say. God uses that as part of your transformation. He is not contingent on the evil that was done to you. He is able to redeem it and to wrap it into this process of transformation. So you are tempted to operate in your own strength and that temptation causes you to sin and then sin leads to death. And that is opening up this category for a universal test that we are all met with. If you're human, you are met with the test of death. Can you pass that test? Can you crack the code? Can you confidently say, like, oh no, death, it's not going to be a deal for me because I'm without sin. And therefore, sin doesn't give rise to death. No. This is part of our humbling. It's reckoning with our own souls that we all have sinned, that we all are in need. We've all failed in such a way that, does it actually matter if we rejoice in transformation? Because we're going to die. There's a um, a powerful kind of illustration that I... Um, that I was thinking of when I was thinking about this, att- this attempt that we have or this delusion that we're in that we can solve problems with our own strength and that it matters. <laughs> um, there's, a, there's a guy, a classmate in seminary that I had and he was a neurosurgeon at John Hopkins and he was kind of like the director of the department of neurosurgery And he was able to do a technique that only a handful of people in the world could do. And so he's, you know, in a class, I think, learning Greek, which is a dead language, um, ancient Greek. And it's like two o'clock on a Tuesday. And somebody was asking him, like, are you taking off work and, like, going back? He's like, actually, I've scaled my practice down. And I'm only working in the hospital now eight hours a week. And the guy was like, oh. It's an interesting life choice. And he said, yeah, I've, I, my colleagues are giving me a ton of pressure. Because they're saying, don't you understand that if you don't come to work, people die? Don't you understand that like you can do something that nobody else can do? And the guy said, you know, that really kept me up at night for, for a little bit. But then he called to mind this this kind of truism, this quote. He said, Graveyards are full of indispensable people. Graveyards are full of indispensable people. And what that shows you is that death, it humbles all of us. We think we're indispensable. We think our contribution to this world is necessary. We think if we don't show up to work, we, like, Everything's going to fall apart. Countries are going to go to war with each other. People will die. Like, we're not going to make enough money for this quarter. Well, that's a huge problem because you're going to be dead one day. And then everything will fall apart. So how is it that this world keeps spinning? What, what is the purpose in that? And that leads us to this, to this last section. There's only purpose in it if it's God who's transforming you. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James is reclassifying these trials, these tests, these things that we usually just want to get rid of, overcome, and then keep moving. He's reclassifying them into good gifts. He's saying, yeah. They might be bad things. God is using them as good gifts. He's using them as good gifts. And they are coming from someone who's not in a transformation process. He's not wondering how this is all going to turn out. No, he is the father of lights. All good comes from him. He shows you everything good. He does not change. There's no variation or shadow with him. Perfect already. So, what's he doing with us? Well, he has brought us forth. He has brought us forth of his own will. He has purposed us that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So, our faith, right? Because this test is a testing of faith, it is showing you your faith, what you're trusting in. When you are trusting in Jesus, you are united to him. You're united to Christ by that faith. By faith that is alive and active. And when you are united to Christ, you're united to him in his life and his death. Remember who was tested? He went into the wilderness, was tested by the serpent. Tempted, by Satan himself to sin, to trust in his own strength rather than the plan of his father. He was humbled. He took on a human nature. He entered into the transformation process. He needed to become perfect in his human nature. He learned obedience by acting, by choosing God's will. He was humbled in his death. He was crucified, basically naked on a cross. But you're also united to his resurrection. That's the first fruit. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was the first first fruit. We are united to him in his resurrection. You know what that means? We won't stay dead. We know that. We can look at his life and see our future and know it certainly. We are united to him in his resurrection and we're united in that purpose. So just like the fading flower and the withering grass, we may fade and fall, but the God who transforms us will never change. He's unthreatened by death. His purpose is certain to come to pass. And so you can rejoice in your transformation. Whatever you are facing, whatever hardship that you're undergoing right now, whatever anxiety is plaguing you, whatever stress, whatever pressure, whatever suffering, you can be sure that God is using it for glorious purpose. That does not mean that it's not hard. It doesn't mean that you stop feeling anxious. But what it means is that now you have clear, instruction and clear reason to take your heart and kind of make it submit into a posture of joy to consider it joy because you can see the purpose of God at work still hard Jesus didn't want to die still hurt he didn't want to be faced with the punishment of our sin but for the glory that was set before him he endured the shame and submitted himself to the cross. And that is the way of Jesus that James wants us to walk in and to rejoice in it, to rejoice in it. Here's the thing that struck me about this, this idea of a first fruit and a, a glimmer of the world to come. Our rejoicing today is participation in the perfect world that Christ will bring. When we rejoice in our hardship, in the things that are testing us and are trying us, we are participating in that perfect world. So rest in that. Stop trying to solve the unsolvable problem. Stop relying on your strength. Don't keep things of your life off the table with God. Release them to him. And rest in knowing that God is using everything to transform you, and it is happening exactly according to His purpose, please pray with me. Father, we thank you for for Your Word. Um, we wouldn't think this up on our own, and so God, we just we we praise you that you not only are the one who is doing this, that you are working towards our transformation, that you are working for us and on behalf of us, but that you also Bring us in to participate in it, to cooperate with you, to join you in this work. And so God, I ask that even here this morning, that we would go through that process of turning our hearts into joy, That we wouldn't, um, that we wouldn't despair, that even in the midst of hard things, of grief, of pain, that we would see this and know what you were up to, and that we would have joy. As a result. And so, Lord, help us live that out. Help us be lights to each other. Help us be encouragements to each other. Help us to show off to this world, as first fruits of the resurrection life, what it looks like to love you and to trust you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to